Okay, good morning everyone and welcome to another New Energy Chinwag with Charlie Rattan and myself. Um, today we thought we'd talk a little bit about renewable heat, which is not something that has tended to get so much coverage, I would say, although it's becoming certainly much more of a focus in markets like the UK these days, um, because it actually contributes an awful lot more to carbon emissions than does electricity. So when we're talking about net zero targets and so on, you can't really talk about them unless you start thinking about what to do with heat. So Charlie, uh, this was this was one of your topics. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I've been uh, I've been struck by renewable heat. It's had a few false dawns over the years, uh, John. We've, uh, I remember going to conferences in uh, the early 2000s where renewable heat was going to be the next big thing and I think incentives were put in place. We heard about the RHI, the renewable heat incentives, and then lo and behold, uh, not, much, uh, not much seems to have happened from, uh, from a, a detached uh, viewpoint. But I think now it may be worth uh, uh, revisiting. We, uh, in our previous uh, podcasts, have discussed um, tech moving through, a big push for, a global push for hydrogen at, uh, at the moment. And I really suppose would now look to the Scottish Energy Strategy published in uh, December 2017 for guidance. And really, it, said, it echoes your thoughts. It says, look, for every unit of electricity produced in the UK, uh, there are three units of, of gas, uh, principally methane, uh, produced. And that is the real energy driver. And although we've decarbonised electricity, and it's uh, the grid is, I think, a third green and, and, and moving ever increasingly uh, green, that's not been the case for the... Um, the creaking gas network, which is um, it's nearing the end of its life, and people are now starting to think, well, what what do we do? We know that um, there's three units of, uh, of gas for every one of electricity consumed. We've got an ageing network, and should we now start exploring other uses for it and uh, alternatives for it? And that is encapsulated. It's encapsulated in uh, in various papers written in the last 12 months by government, and it's especially important in the Scottish energy strategy. So. I, I might, I might ask you, perhaps as a starter, what, what would you say that, what, what is renewable heat? Yeah, well, I mean, just to go back to your comments about gas, and also, I guess, for benefit of non-UK listeners, um, it's probably worth making the point up front that in terms of heat, here in the UK at least, the majority, I, I don't remember off the top of my head what the percentage is, but the majority of, of heat in the UK is using natural gas. There's also some... Um, heat through electric heating and in rural areas um, oil heating is actually still reasonably um, reasonably common so if we're talking about renewable heat what we're really talking about is ways to get rid of um, burning fossil fuels which in the UK primarily is going to be replacing gas with something else um, you can also obviously or replacing oil with something else if it's electric heating already then obviously we're kind of taking care of that through having more renewable electricity but really the the focus in the uk to make a big dent in this is going to be on the margins a little bit of heating oil replacement and i've already seen companies talking about having biofuels rather than fossil fuel for heating oil certainly blending in the short term eventually maybe 100 percent replacement but in terms of gas it's what do we do about replacing natural gas so renewable heating is either we replace the gas with something else that goes to the same network and so that's replace natural gas with a renewable gas 
and if we're talking about renewable gases, I would say there's there's two options really. There's there's renewable methane, which is going to be biomethane, or or potentially, but much more expensively, um, synthetically produced methane, or it's going to be blending and eventually replacing methane with hydrogen. And again, to be renewable, that hydrogen is going to have to be hydrogen from renewable sources, which is by which we really mean electricity and electrolysis. So that's that's one option. And the other option for renewable heating is to is to forget about burning anything in a boiler um, and to have more electrification of heating. And so the alternatives there really are the the big one that people talk about is, is heat pumps, I would say. And um, there are a few other kind of niche technologies, but um, I would say the battle I see the battle really being between replacing natural gas with either hydrogen and or some form of biomethane or renewable methane versus um, more electrification of houses and using heat pumps driven by renewable electricity. So I guess that's how I kind of summarise the playing field. I agree with the summary, a very um, comprehensive uh, summary. There are a few nuances that have... uh, 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 emerged to my mind at least, and that is that we are effectively talking about methane effectively. That is the bulk of when we say gas or natural gas, methane is the um, is the bulk. But that's not always been the uh, the case. And I, I was surprised to learn that the old town gas, as it was called in the UK, already contained um, hydrogen, as indeed does some of the natural gas as well. And the hydrogen in Victorian times could be quite high. And so <clears throat> one thing that... Um, it surprised me and delighted me was that a lot of the existing network in the UK actually is pretty much fit to carry at least a proportion of hydrogen down the network. Now, I suppose there's limits, and I suppose we learned uh, a little bit talking to some hydrogen uh, people up at, uh, at Glasgow recently about how much hydrogen you can squirt into a network before problems emerge with molecular structure, with some of the fitments on either end, lining it with plastic. And also retrofitting to existing kit. Um, we're talking, if we are talking about going for the gas and going for methane, you're talking about mass, millions, millions of gas boilers already extant in the UK. And even if you had a gradual program of replacement with some kind of hydrogen, you're talking something equivalent to the old dash for gas in the 1970s. Uh, I've even heard figures of a million boilers. Uh, per year, uh, that kind of that kind mm-hmm. of investment, which is uh, is, is transformational. So um, I suppose on the nuanced pictures, we're looking at um, biomethane rather than existing methane, which can be made from a number of uh, sources, and hydrogen. Number of hydrogen, this blue hydrogen, as it's called, perhaps more uh, accurately called brown hydrogen. Uh, there's a CCS capture in there. Uh, then there's the the 100% hydrogen option, which would probably need new uh, kit. Um, and appliances at either end as uh, as well. And then there are a number of hybrid type of options uh, uh, along the way. But you've mentioned a few other aspects of, of, of renewable heat. And, and quite back in 2004, it was going to be heat pumps were going to be the coming tech and everybody was being encouraged. Uh, but it didn't quite happen for some reason. Have you any insight as to why why that never took off? Uh, I can give some insight as a, as a consumer um, having had quotes for prices of heat pumps cost and certainly when we when we looked at our house because if, if i look at the 
the energy costs and the carbon footprint of where we live. It's a it's a reasonably elderly house, um, <clears throat> so it's not. It's certainly far far from being any kind of net zero, <clears throat> um, perfectly insulated house. Um, so most of our footprint comes comes from heating. So that was obviously a, a thing to look at. Uh, the most obvious thing initially, if you're going to do anything with heating, is to insulate. Um, so actually, where we chose to spend a big chunk of money um, a few years ago. In the first instance, was was insulate insulation. So in our case, that was secondary glazing. It was um, better insulation on a on a flat roof that we've got. Uh, but then we did look at. We have more recently looked at quotes for replacing our conventional boiler with heat pumps. Now, one of the problems I've found is that with heat pumps, you've got to remember that you can you can see some numbers for heat pumps that look quite low. Um, the problem is that when you start sizing them up to bigger houses they the numbers look quite bit look much bigger um you've got air source heat pumps um or you've got ground source heat pumps if you've got ground source heat pumps it's not just the cost of the heat pump it's the cost of um all the um either either a borehole or a whole bunch of um pipe work digging up your garden that goes into it um you need to price into the quote and the other thing that i think people ignore is the impact not just of the heat pump itself but distributing around the house because heat pumps are produce low temperature heating so if you've got a house which has been built for high temperature heating from a boiler um, the other thing that is often not told to you until <clears throat> closer to the to the quote is the fact that you might need to replace your radiators either that or you'd have to invest in in underfloor heating um something more suitable for, for low temperature heat so it's not just the cost of the heat pump it's the cost of groundworks potentially if it's ground source um and also it's the cost of um retrofitting or replacing how you distribute that heat around the home so i, I think there's a there's a big big issue not which is not just around cost it's about consumer inconvenience and it's about knock-on costs um so certainly my experience as someone that's kind of looked into this kind of thing for our, for our own house is that, that that's a that's certainly a barrier to heat pumps if we look at payback times i mean you could you could forget it by the time you've added in all all the various things to actually get a working system sized correctly for your house um there wouldn't really be a payback unless i guess potentially if you went to sell the house you might be able to build into the value of your house but we were talking about tens of thousands of pounds um <clears throat> so so the, the payback period was going to be enormous if ever um so i mean that would be one that's one attractive thing of i guess reusing the gas network or reusing um devices that are already in people's houses um as, as much as you can and so that would certainly favor either a biomethane approach or, or a hydrogen approach now uh, the mechanics i think will be different if you're talking about new build properties i think with new build properties rather rather than building new gas connections to new build properties putting heat pumps in as you build the house makes an enormous amount of sense in fact it's it's a bit of a no-brainer along with sticking solar panels on rooftops and, and so on um but i think a lot of the debate needs to also home in on this on this idea of retrofit and they need to look at it not just from the situation in terms of the cost of the product 
but they need to also look at it in terms of the additional costs that they're expecting consumers to bear and also the additional inconvenience. Um, if you're going to fit underfloor heating and you've got a reasonably big house, that's that's a lot of flooring um, and a lot of a lot of work that's going to have to be have to be done to do that. If you're going to replace 15, 20 radiators in a home in a reasonably big home, you that's an awful lot of costs and an awful lot of inconvenience as well. So, so I think. I think certainly with reusing the gas network, um, it has a big advantage in terms of it's a kind of what I'd call a path of least resistance, if you like. <clears throat> it's the disruption is on the network side, not on the consumer side. And I think people underestimate how much disruption on the consumer side is a barrier to uptake of, of anything, be it solar panels, be it low carbon heating, be it electric cars, be it whatever. Um, the, the smoother you can make the transmission for the customers, uh, the better. Yeah, there's um, a lot in there. That it seems to be there's perhaps a degree of naivety. I remember things like the CERT scheme, where that was going to be a big boost. Well, that has come and uh, gone. And uh, there are going to be various other cost-cutting initiatives. But I've come across, um, obviously, a similar story with hydrogen. Everybody talks about hydrogen, but actually coming in at four times the cost. And that's not a great selling point, certainly not to the, <laughs> the long-suffering uh, consumer, mm. who ultimately has got to foot the bill before, because of this. And sometimes the industry perhaps gets overly enthused and doesn't perhaps see that you know ultimately it's, it's a political issue i think um i think mr milliband hit something of a bullseye when he said look at these electricity costs the, the spiraling out we're going to cap them and i was working for a utility time and at the time and it, it didn't necessarily go down especially well and it certainly didn't go down well for the, the renewables development team uh, that it was in and it's often often forgotten by some of the early protagonists, it's not it's not delightful to have your garden ripped up or your flooring done or get rid of fourteen radiators. And it's, it's sometimes not made uh, um, uh, kind of uh, aware. You're not aware of it at an early enough stage to realise that that's part of the bigger picture. And perhaps it's more of an opportunity for the new builds now. Um, I think I read somewhere that the uh, the methane boilers are going from 2025, not far off. Uh, so I would have thought that's going to start impacting decisions made now. Mm. Who is going to make a decision now, knowing that the kit is going to be obsolete? Perhaps they should be looking at other products. And I think we saw some up in Scotland. Uh, I think there were boilers with up to 20% um, capacity for, for um, uh, hydrogen, which most boilers can, uh, mm. can take. Uh, and then beyond that, we'll get to the 100% one, trialling uh, trialing in various towns and, uh, and cities. So we've discussed why heat pumps didn't really take off, but they're still out there uh, and there's still an yeah, opportunity. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, for... I'm certainly not saying that there won't be strong growth in heat pumps. Um, for, for smaller houses, costs will be much lower. As I say, for the new builds, I think they're an absolute no-brainer. Um, and, and a lot of commercial industrial situations, again, um, where it's it's potentially easier to make the, the business case and spread those costs over a kind of longer period, um, which is, again, something that households aren't necessarily prepared to take the risk on, on doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think heat pumps will certainly grow and be important but i think i mean i've had a lot of people talking about well let's get get rid of burning anything completely and just go completely to electrification of heat um i mean but i think there are there are issues in terms of how practical it is from a from an implementation point of view for the reasons i've said and also uh, there are issues then in terms of the electricity supply as well as you said three times um heat is three times as much um, well, gas is three times as much um, as electricity, I think, was the, was the number you had. Um, 
even if so, if, even if heat pumps arguably are three times more efficient than a gas boiler because of the, the way they multiply um, the, the heating effect, the coefficient of heating, um, it would still mean you'd be doubling the amount of electricity you'd, you'd need to use compared to what we're doing now. So, um, so again, there are, there are issues on, there are no easy answers, basically, um, however you look to do it. What, what I have been doing is um, got involved in a thing called the Rio 2 uh, negotiations. Every five years, people take a high-level review of the gas network and say, is it, is it not much has happened in the gas industry for 20, 25 years, but there's a feeling now that electricity is stormed ahead and it's much more flexible, brownouts, blackouts, renewable energy, you name it, and it's happened for electricity. But that's not happened in the gas field. It's been a little bit staid, kit is mm. ageing. But perhaps that presents opportunities. And the things I've come across, uh, I've mentioned the Scottish energy strategy because I think that's relevant. I think we can expect some kind of cleave off of parts of the Scottish gas network and perhaps to be um, replaced with uh, much, much higher inputs of hydrogen. Mm. And I expect something similar in the northwest um, with carbon capture, and also in the city of Leeds, which I think they're going to go much more to a pure hydrogen trial. Mm. And rather than talk about putting 20% in and using existing kit, be much more ambitious, and I'm not quite sure how they're going to work this, uh, but, um, but uh, put 100% in and see how it goes. Uh, one curiosity about the Leeds thing, it was driven by um, uh, a fellow, I think he was called Dan Sadler, who I did notice had been snapped up by Equinor. So I watched that space with uh, with interest mm. and see whether Equinor, who I would imagine are well-placed, uh, to get involved in the 100% renewable uh, and, and to come from a utility background into, in, into that field. Others are moving into the field as well. And I think you're right. I think there's half a dozen separate nuances within the renewable gas uh, field. Um, I've lost track of where biomass has got. That, again, that was uh, biomass was going to be a big thing mm. at one time. That seems to have gone uh, gone a little bit more slowly. I, th- I know that it's, it's not it's not an easy thing. Biomass, so a bit of a living, eating, breathing entity. Once you've got biomass tanks up and running, it's not trivial, and it's not necessarily one size fits all. There's a bit of an art, art to it as well. Yeah. That's got a little bit quiet. Yeah, with um, if we're talking about kind of producing methane, we're basically talking about anaerobic digestion mainly um now i mean that's that's a perfectly good reasonably straightforward technology that the issue with that is is scale um i i just don't see there's well there is no way that you're going to replace the uk's natural gas usage for heating by digesting and decomposing things in small tanks on relatively small um farm scale type systems um even a very big biogas system is still tiny if we're talking about kind of utility scale terms so so i think it's it's a great it's a great use of kind of waste biomass on a small scale but it's you're not suddenly going to start replacing the entire uk's methane demand by um by using biomass waste by by biodigesters um so i think it'll contribute um but i guess that's why the interest then comes into hydrogen as to whether hydrogen is something that you can scale up um, on a much larger scale. And again, then you're into the ways of doing that. We've talked about these before ourselves. We've talked about well, the the quickest and the biggest scale already is to produce hydrogen from natural gas. Um, but then it's not clean hydrogen. It, it's effectively um, fossil <coughs> fossil hydrogen and more particularly the carbon that you separate from the hydrogen from the natural gas has to go somewhere um so that that only makes sense if you 
if you're going to capture that carbon and do something with it, either store it or use it um, in other ways that replace the need for fossil fuels. Um, and then in the long run is whether electrolysis can scale up um, to produce enough hydrogen. And there was quite a bit around that in, in Glasgow. But again, yeah. that, then we're into does the technology kind of technology scale and how quickly and also what does that do in terms of electricity demand? One uh, hot off the press snippet that might feed into that debate, John, is that I did notice that Shell Mile Company had bought another Dutch company called Eneco uh, mm -hmm. yesterday, and Eneco were very strong on the hydrogen uh, field. I think they've got, even got operational uh, electrolysis plants, if not in, in planning. <clears throat> and indeed, Shell was uh, very strong on hydrogen as well. Mm -hmm. Coupled with the new um, round four leasing round, coupled with Dutch rounds, German rounds, Scottish mm -hmm. rounds, I would say it's a pretty sure banker that the electrolysis production of hydrogen is going to ramp up uh, yeah, dramatically. Yeah, yeah. The, we, we touched upon it in our uh, in our hydrogen uh, pod, uh, podcast, but it's, uh, it's it's even more even more of a direction of travel even in the recent weeks that we've uh, put that one uh, out. And it, it, everywhere you, you look, people are indeed talking about uh, hydrogen. And uh, of course, we are interested, I suppose, especially in uh, in what you might call the green hydrogen. As opposed to the um, also shell the uh, the brown hydrogen and the mm. blue hydrogen and various other epithets. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, th I think, and that's one thing that hydrogen definitely has going for it is that there's some very very big companies and some very big interests, particularly from the oil and gas sector, are, are very much behind hydrogen. I mean, for self-interested re reasons, in, in the in the short run. A lot of it will be produced from natural gas, which they produce. So it, it helps their, their natural gas sales, if you like. Um, but also because the gases are something that they're used to dealing with. They know how to um, they know how to move them about. They know how to trade them, price them. Um, they understand supply and demand. Um, they're also the kind of companies that are already involved in carbon capture and storage in oil fields and so on. So I think regardless of I mean, people argue the merits and the efficiencies and all that kind of stuff between hydrogen and other things. But I think one thing that efficiency and technical efficiency and, and kind of thermodynamic efficiency, if you like, is one thing. But money also <laughs> makes a big difference. And and the fact is, with hydrogen, there's there's an awful lot of money is going to um, be be pushed into it a lot of lobbying and a lot of kind of if you like industry influence behind it as well in, in addition as you say from the gas network there's a bunch of assets out there waiting to be be used rather than um be stranded assets so uh, again i think that will drive activity there oh, it's a bit of a no-brainer really from their point of view at least to explore it and if you're a shell shareholder you'd be quite comfortable with them pushing ahead perhaps on a few trial projects couple it with a offshore uh, wind projects where there might be grid issues. Well, it doesn't matter if you're producing uh, hydrogen via electrolysis mm. at certain times, the constraints to an extent uh, uh, melt away. So we've discussed biomass, we've discussed AD, and we've discussed heat pumps and why some of the talk, it's still there, it's not gone away, but it never really broke through. And uh, it, uh, it, perhaps it needs uh, perhaps a new builder approach or net zero cities uh, approach. I did see in Manchester, whole streets are now getting converted to uh, heat pumps. So there's mm. some synergies in there which is good news for the uh, for the construction people and it's good news for the uh, for the heat pump uh, people any other tech that we've not really discussed there are a couple of ones that i've come across but is there anything that you'd like to put into the into the picture at this at uh, this stage we've probably covered the main ones i mean i i'm forever coming across little niche ones um companies claiming 
things like I don't know there's there was a company that it, I think it was kind of infrared radiative wires in your ceiling so instead of heating the air um your you heat up <clears throat> you heat up yourself in the in the room uh, which is a bit like some of the kind of patio heaters and restaurant heaters that that you you see um so i've seen kind of niche well i there's certainly niche technologies now i've no idea if they're any good um so you see things like that um you mentioned the other day about yeah, one yeah there was the um, there's ones. one i came across that's worth perhaps mentioning and that is traditionally um I mean, windmills have been around for, for yonks, to use your own uh, word, and certainly in Holland, where these flatter, squatter windmills have been used for pumping for, for, for centuries, and indeed the UK as, yeah. uh, as well. Um, now, in the UK, we went in the last 20 years, most wind farms have got as a reason to enter, if you like, the generational electricity is built into the wind farm, you know, lying one of the ES we are for the generation of electricity. But it's not the only thing you can do with wind. There is still the pumping and all the rest of it. But one thing you can do is revisit some of the things that happen. And I've been talking to a company and says it's funny because wind engineers have been trying to get rid of heat, but we just said that there's a real demand for heat. Why, why are we not building upon it rather than getting rid mm. of it? So they've gone back to basics and they've come up with a very highly torqued machine that operates at very low wind speed, stuff that no commercial wind farm developer would bother with. It's just too mm. low. But they say that interests us because that's exactly what we are looking for. We put faster blades on to torque up our kit which basically involves a lot of resistance. So you get the wind farm cranking around mechanically. It produces resistance. So the resistance is then harvested. There's then a few couple of uh, semi-permeable membranes in there in a kind of sealed unit. And lo and behold, you crank this thing around and you can see a thermometer go up. Not the most exciting visual display I've ever seen, but the thermometer climbs up from perhaps room temperature, 18, 19 degrees, up to 60, 65 and beyond. And that, that is the mm. perfect operating temperature. Uh, so one thing is, why has it not been done before? Well, there were bits of the uh, of the jigsaw that weren't quite right. There was a bit of tech to it. I perhaps oversimplified it. But actually, the principles are very, very simple. It's got a long, in theory at least, lifetime. There's nothing much to uh, to go wrong with it. It doesn't use anything scary. There's no scary chemicals, no kosh or Irish or anything. It's just a sealed unit. Uh, and and, and away, away you go. So there's not much to... Um, to, to go wrong with it. And of course, you've got no grid, so you don't need to worry about um, going through a due diligence test for the various um, um, grid aspects, which uh, those of us that have been through the process know it can be a little bit um, tortuous. So all that melts away. Uh, that's in test, um, and it's in the UK, so we'll watch that space with interest. But it just shows that we talk about the tech, but a tech that has been effectively around for centuries, a big squat wind turbine, bopping at very low speed, nice and steady, can actually get you the heat. You don't need to grid it up. You can perhaps put it on the edge of a housing development. It's scalable. Uh, you, there, there, there are versions being mooted whereby, all right, it's not quite the most efficient wind turbine, but actually they're looking at a, a version that actually flips. So you say, well, we'll use heat until then. But if the local community decides it wants electricity, then we flip the switch and it becomes an electricity mm -hmm. generator. It might, might not be the cheapest, but that might suit uh, the certain communities, I think, that might be interested in that kind of, uh, uh, yeah. of option. Uh, I can, you, can, you can imagine that as a, a summer versus winter thing as well. Because um, if you look at demand for heat in the UK, I mean, winter, it's enormous. Summer, it's not very big. Um, so, so you can maybe do that. I mean, I think you raised the point in terms of maybe it could be on the edge of a housing estate. What, I think one of the issues why some of those solutions um, and, and certainly the 
in the UK at least, where we district heating's never been a, a big thing. Um, one difference between heat and electricity is if unless you're generating the heat where you're actually going to use it, um, it's much harder to move heat about. You basically need big insulated pipes and again, lots of civil works to do it. Whereas electricity, at least you can stick it in a wire and it reappears a hundred miles away. Um, so heat by its nature lends itself to kind of distributed distributed generation. You need to generate it where you're going to use it. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting. In fact, two interesting points have emerged uh, from, from what you just said there, John. One is indeed the piping. And I know that's not trivial. Certainly, if you're an environmental protection agency, you would not be thrilled at 65 degree heat traversing the countryside and what effects that would have on peat marshes or water waterways or whatever. You certainly need to assess that. Uh, it wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be cheap either. So that is, is an absolute factor. We even well, I mean, the, the point there is that you'd have it'd have to be in insulated pipes. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't be. I would suggest it's not the effect on the environment because if you're affecting the environment, you're losing the heat by the time it arrives at the other end. You won't have any left. So the key issue there for the develop is the developers, the cost of of those insulated pipes. And basically, if you you can draw graphs of kind of distance versus cost, and um, if you're going if you're going any any distance, it, it becomes a real problem. So you really are looking at um, at using it close to source. But as you say, that could be housing estates. It could be industrial estates as well. I mean, there's big usage of heat in, in kind of factories and offices and so on. So you could certainly build out of town office um, facilities. I mean, around where we are, there's a whole bunch of kind of little um, business like the way they're converting, for example, old, old barns and things and converting them into kind of small office facilities and, and so on for kind of local local usage. Um, you can certainly imagine facilities like that where you could you could have a, a single source, whatever it may be, be it one of these kind of wacky wind turbines just supplying that that building. So, yeah, so I think those kind of solutions are interesting. How much of a dent they make in the kind of whole national picture is <clears throat> would be the, the debate. Yeah, the one I was looking at was looking to scale up to a three megawatt um, machine. But like you say, I think the constraint will be the piping. Mm. We've certainly come across it on cabling, even with offshore schemes where you need such a massive project just to carry the cabling mm. costs, yeah. and that's with the popping up a 100-mile scenario that you just uh, outlined. There's one other thing, and we've called this podcast Renewable Heat, but uh, perhaps we're, perhaps we're <laughs> UK, our UK base is perhaps uh, <laughs> impacting our uh, discussions, but perhaps we should also think about the flip side of it, and that is renewable cooling, because mm. yeah. uh, the, the company that um, designed this, uh, that I'm in discussions with, uh, are also saying that it, the same principles uh, work for cooling as... Um, yeah. As, as well and although that might not be of quite so much interest in the uk i would imagine that globally that might be something that might uh, yeah, many yeah. things that they mentioned were things like desalination mm. and things like that other other aspects that tie in i know the scots are quite good on tying other tech in and that when they come to their round whatever equivalent scottish territorial round two or three they're looking at tying in the offshore wind floating offshore wind with electrolysis floating offshore wind with fish farms floating offshore wind with who knows what. And um, again, some of this tech isn't just about the, the, the little bubble around electricity generation, which has, has dominated the last 20 years in the UK, but there are other byways uh, and, and there might be of great interest out with of the shores of the, uh, of the UK. So mm. Certainly certain countries of the, of the world, certainly locations might lend themselves. And if you're not bothered about connecting it to the national transmission grid, 
uh, then you might think, well, actually, some of these localized solutions mm. might might be worth exploring. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you mentioned cooling. Certainly, if you go to Southeast Asia and other other areas of the world, that's the boom in air conditioning is is enormous, and and you end up with really quite scary forecasts of how much that's going to add to energy demand over the over the the following years so so yeah if you we talk about heating here because that's that's important um but globally certainly cooling is a massive massive issue um not not just because of the current market um but because of the growth of that that market and uh, as you say anything if you've got heat you can do cooling as well there's a, a device called an absorption chiller which I've always struggled to be able to scientifically explain, but anyway, there, there's technology there which can take waste heat and turn it into into air conditioning. So, so yeah, the, the two market, the two kind of, if you like, thermal markets go side by side in many cases. Okay, so we've covered a whole heap of uh, tech today. It's ranged from uh, from gas, methane, to hydrogen, to uh, to biomass, to heat pumps, and now some of the mechanical solutions is there anything else that's uh, in, in, in the renewable heat picture that we've perhaps not uh, not discussed or has not cropped up today um i'm sure there's lots one thing you did mention very briefly at the start which is probably worth highlighting again was um the f- uh, policy you mentioned the renewable heat incentive um yes. and and how that hasn't really it hasn't really taken off in the same way as the, for example feed-in tariffs helped the growth of renewable electricity i guess one thing that's worth pointing out is policy and heat is quite tricky um i would say feed-in tariff it's it's quite easy to incentivize people to pay people to produce a unit of renewable electricity um because if they produce a unit of renewable electricity it can be pushed into the system and it can be used as a unit of renewable electricity the problem with producing heat is if you pay people to produce another unit of heat one way that they can maximize their returns is to just leave all their windows open and let the heat disappear out into the sky um so which again is down to this fact that you can't you're using it where it is rather than moving it about and i think that was one of the problems so the renewable heat incentive was was much more complicated than the feed-in tariff there were all sorts there was kind of energy efficiency you had to have to begin with there was kind of audits on how your consumption was changing over time and so on um there was and i don't know whether it's quite the same thing but there was that scandal in northern ireland that was all around renewable heat incentive as well which again i think was largely around people kind of maximizing their returns from it by basically not (laughs) not being very efficient the way they operated it so so that's traditionally been a problem with policy with renewable heat as you actually the first thing you want to do with heat is you want to use less of it it's back to the efficiency insulation side of it the most the the easiest way to reduce emissions from heat is to is to not not use as much and not let it leak out of the out of the building um that you're the same the same is true of cooling as well so it'd be interesting to see how policy develops on that front do you do we incentivize people to produce more heat or do we or do we incentivize other things and and subsidize other things so just to to finish off back to your the issue about boilers for example would a more efficient way to encourage a transition be to have a kind of scrappage scheme for old gas boilers so that to help people replace 
with boilers that can take hydrogen instead. That, to my mind, that potentially is a is a kind of easier way to kind of ease that transition than to try and come up with some complicated way to pay people to produce heat and then have to be quite careful about making sure that they're not producing heat and then just letting it out of the windows to heat the sky. So I think there's some interesting policy issues around it. Yeah, so it's very difficult to uh, to enforce and to administer and to uh, to record. I do remember there was a, a cert scheme that tried to go down. It's not from a from a business entrepreneurship side. It's not the most exciting thing, is it, to go and come around and have a look at my newly insulated loft? Doesn't set a lot of the entrepreneurial yeah. uh, pulse uh, racing, perhaps, as opposed to come and have a look at two hundred and forty meter wind turbine and a hundred and seven meter blade or something like uh, that. But then. That's what I thought. Things like the search scheme, the much maligned search scheme, which tried to bring some of this, uh, some of this stuff alongside renewables, but it seems to have fallen a little bit by the uh, wayside. Electricity bills were creeping up. The non mm. non fuel bill uh, aspect of the bill was creeping up, and is now becoming eye watering to some uh, some extent. So uh, I can see why there've been a number of false dawns. But that's that's been the case with other tech. It's been the case with carbon capture and storage, mm. which is. Uh, has been a bit of a hokey cokey in and out again, and then it's suddenly in fashion. And it's biomass too, and people study the charts of, uh, of incentives and, and, and so forth. Uh, but it's still out there, uh, and, and, and doubtless, if uh, the country is serious now about these 2050 aspirations, which are pretty much seem to be uh, gaining all party approval, and even more ambitious in places like Manchester, 2038. We heard in Glasgow, 2030 for them, 11 years, mm. uh, an amazingly ambitious. Um, kind of concept of going net zero for an entire city within 11 years. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure that they will, uh, they've got the wind farms around, they've got partners with Scottish Power, and they're in a, a very, very strong position to, uh, to get impetus on that, which will drive a whole heap of, uh, of things, including, uh, including, I would imagine, renewable heat. So it might be well, worth... I, what, I we guess. know the Scottish... Yeah. I so guess unless you address renewable heat, then there's no way you're going to be net zero <laughs> in good, 11 years. It's a good, perhaps, location to push your boat out uh, a little bit. So 11 years from now, we'll go back up to all energy, in, uh, perhaps not in May, but uh, mm. be early in the year and see exactly how much, uh, how much of that aspiration has been put yeah. into, uh, into practice. Okay, is there anything else that we should really be discussing? Uh, we've, we've gotten a uh, pretty thorough uh, discussion yep, on that renewable heat summary yeah. of, of the market and some of the options and some of the decisions that need making um but yeah we can maybe revisit some of the details yeah future podcasts yeah and does uh, we, we reach out to listeners and perhaps encourage them to let us know uh, john and i like to hear from you what you think of the uh, discussions that we've been having we've discussed even a couple of byways in there um renewable cooling uh, that might be merit a, a podcast uh, of its own but it's up to you the uh, to listeners to, if, you, if you want us to go down that uh, route please uh, please let us know okay so i think for today um thanks for listening and hope you enjoy it and look out for future podcasts in this series thanks thank you <laughs>